Get set for the shock of your lifetime, The Flaming Teenage, a story that will take you from hell to eternity, the true unvarnished confession of a juvenile delinquent. Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and on behalf of myself and my co-producer, Bruce A. Brown, I want to welcome you to a very special episode of the True Tunes podcast. When we started this project, we had a few stories in mind that we absolutely knew needed to be told. Today, you are going to hear one of them. It's an impossibly true tale of artistic integrity and spiritual adventure told over a span of half a century, resulting in a body of work that, while certainly nowhere near as famous as it should be, has been life-giving, soul-challenging, humorous, heartbreaking, and haunting for a small but passionately devoted community of friends, fans, and supporters. Now, at 71 years old, Terry Scott Taylor has just finished a 21-song solo opus, truly a masterpiece, that speaks directly to the fear, dismay, and frustration many of us are feeling with beautiful, tangible guidance from someone who has been navigating this kind of terrain for many years. I'm alive again, call out something you can't hear any other way Maybe worth believing Time's running out of time And time will tell All will be well As we've been talking about quite a bit here on the show, Back in the 60s, an entire generation of young people plumbed the increasingly sophisticated world of rock and folk music for spiritual threads, anything that might help them make sense of the emptiness and decay they were finding in the world around them. Between the civil rights struggles, the Vietnam War, and the relentless assault of consumerism, the world seemed to be collapsing in on itself. But some pushed against the tide, developed their own counterculture, and started a revolution in the process. As the dark side of their liberalized take on sex and drugs began to emerge, however, it seemed that the pendulum had swung too far and left them with a whole new set of problems. What they needed, it turned out, were answers. Millions found those answers in the person, words, actions, and mission of Jesus. I know, 
We're in Jesus movement season here on the True Tunes podcast, but there has been a lot to talk about. There are, however, precious few artists and songwriters who have a story and legacy like Terry's. He was one of those kids we are referencing when we talk about the Jesus movement, although he and his friends ultimately found a less conventional musical path than many who ended up making Christian music after those heady Jesus music days. In many ways, his new album is more in line with the spirit and tone of those early sounds than the music that became so commercially successful since then. finally get around to opening our True Tunes Hall of Fame, Terry Scott Taylor will definitely be in the inaugural class. He has been, hands down, one of the most influential artists in mine and Bruce's lives, and in many ways, one of the reasons True Tunes needed to be created in the first place. Because while revolutions are never sustainable, they acquiesce to one pressure or another and become mainstream, rare individuals retain that fire in their bellies. They stay the course, torpedoes be damned, and carry the revolution forward, even if just for a small remnant. They act as leaders, taking their audience to new places, teaching, inspiring, challenging, comforting, with little or no hope of widespread recognition, remuneration, or even acceptance. Successful man can tell at a glance if a man were born to lose. But no one has given me a chance. That's who Terry Scott Taylor has been as the leader of the band Daniel Amos, as a solo artist, as Camarillo Eddie in the spin-off band The Swirling Eddies, and as one of the Lost Dogs. He has also been a producer, helping other bands and solo artists bring their creative visions to life, including Starflyer 59, Randy Stonehill, Tom Howard, Jacob's Trouble, Scattered Few, Poor Old Lou, Mortal, Alter Boys, Crystal Lewis, and many others. Stop. Thank you. 
It's one thing to grab your guitar as a teenager and hit the road in search of stardom, meaning, or just to avoid adulthood. Many people have done that. But what would keep a man at it for over 50 years, knowing that he'll barely be able to afford to make that next album? I'm as big a Bob Dylan fan as you're going to find. His contributions to the artistic landscape and to my personal internal landscape have been immense, but I wonder if he would have kept at it if there were tiny crowds, minuscule album sales, no fame, no press accolades. I wonder the same about Elvis Costello, Tom Petty, Neil Young, Jeff Lynne, David Byrne, or even the lesser famous but still successful artists like T-Bone Burnett. Taylor's name belongs on lists with people like them. But if I was to write out his life story as a novel, I bet editors would tell me it was too unbelievable. And yet, this criminally obscure songwriter and artist has produced a body of work, over 40 albums worth, depending on how you count, that has been every bit as influential as any of those famous names for me and for many of his fans. This beautiful mystery, created through the support of his fans and in collaboration with many of his lifelong friends and compatriots, has been years in the making and worth every minute of the wait. On this very special two-part episode of the podcast, we visit with Terry Scott Taylor first to hear about his creative and spiritual formation. What is it that kept him pushing on when the music industry and even his band's early fans seemed to abandon him and his work? What captured his imagination so profoundly that he has had so much to offer us over the last 45 years? On part two, we will explore his new album, This Beautiful Mystery, in some detail. He'll tell us about the early vision for it, the way the songs came together, how quarantines and shutdowns impacted the process, and how he feels about it all now that it's finished. We'll listen to several songs and hear about the authors and inspirations behind them, and even get a hint at what might be coming next. So, make yourself comfortable, make sure the sound is good, get yourself a nice beverage, or maybe gather a friend or two to enjoy this with, and prepare for one of the most important conversations I have ever had the honor to participate in, right after we take care of a little bit of housekeeping. Terry and his team have been sending us songs, rough mixes and such, for over a year. Some of you will remember that we actually featured one on this show a while back. I had hoped to get to Portland to interview him in person, but alas, the delays have gone on long enough. So, we booked some time in our virtual True Tunes online interview suite and got comfortable. I wish we were able to do this in person, but this is the next best thing. At least I can see you. And Yeah. Thanks. You for look take- good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for taking time to join us on the podcast today, man. I still love to labor under the belief that we're going to actually talk to people that maybe don't know you. And, and I know from feedback that we've gotten from the show so far that we do have some younger listeners. We've got college students. We've got folks that find this from a ver- variety of sources. And so I, I want to introduce you to some folks and i know that there are lifelong diehard fans that are like okay get straight into the album and let's just dissect this thing but i don't want to rush into that because i don't know want to assume that everybody already knows everything about terry scott taylor so i'd love it if we could start a little bit and and 
set the stage uh, somewhat and, and get to know a little bit about who you are and your formation creatively because I feel like that's kind of what I'm getting out of this album as I've as I've gone through and peeled back the layers I'm going oh he's revealing a lot about the stuff that formed him so before we get into talking about the record I feel like it would be it'd be really interesting to to hear about your story a bit plus it's also interesting that we've had all these conversations recently about the Jesus movement and Jesus music and the stuff that happened 50 years ago. There's lots of milestones going on right now. And I know that your story goes all the way back to that era as well, but it definitely diverged from a lot of what people are talking about when they consider say CCM music, Christian music, whatever the mainstream stuff. So um, if you're game, I'd love to just kind of, get a little Ken Burns on you and sort of uh, <laughs> roll, roll film on the, the Terry Taylor um, biography a little bit. The epic? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll kind of roll the uh, grainy old footage now. and Everything's a little jerky and the, the photos are uh, all sepia-toned. And, um, yeah. I don't know if you remember this or if you know this, but the first interview I ever did I was 18 years old. I had to rush after school. I still was in high school. I had to rush in my Chevette to get to work in time to interview Camarillo Eddie on a phone interview. Oh, wow. That was my first interview yeah. ever. And you were in character the whole time. That was the deal I was told. He, he's going to be- Oh, in, I was. Oh, yeah, in character. And, and I, I, I took it all yeah, the way. Yeah, huh? all the way. And so wow, uh, okay. I still have a cassette. It's a really noisy uh, cassette. It was I had a suction cup microphone stuck to the to the telephone thing but that was my first interview ever uh gosh however many years ago that was 1988 so um how did camarillo treat you very nicely yeah well it's good to hear because he can be kind of surly <laughs> he's a little a little cranky sometimes yeah. what i would love to know is uh what were some of the things at the very beginning of your journey that just enchanted you about music that made you say not only do you want to pick up a guitar and sing so that girls will like you because that's kind of the common thing but that caused you to actually say there is something to this thing that's worth digging in deeper there's something about this that i'm going to give my life to tell me about your your childhood and your first experiences with music that caused you to really want to go into the deep end with it well when i was uh pretty young i would say seven eight years old i would uh make up little songs. I wouldn't do it in front of anybody. It, would, it was always, you know, in secret or in another room or whatever. But I would find myself making up little rhymes and little melodies. And, uh, you know, I got brave enough eventually to sing one of them for my folks, my grandparents. My grandfather uh, loved music. And as a matter of fact, the first guitar I got, you know, with the strings off the... You know, it's just like you know, bleeding. You're pl you're playing this thing and thinking this is this is how all guitars are. Uh, you know, the strings off the neck, you know, an inch and a half or whatever, trying to <laughs> right. form chords. Right. And uh, he had he had found it. I don't know, uh, some shop somewhere, a very cheap acoustic guitar, and it had a crack in it. And he put uh, glue on the on the crack, and then and then. Uh, he made a music staff out of gl with glitter, and that was my first guitar. Wow. And um, and I had uh, was living in Dana, at Dana Point at the time, Dana Point, California, 
And uh, we had our little local newspaper there. And uh, I wrote a poem about my mother, about the 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 uh, burdened housewife, all the things that she needs to, all all of the chores and all the you know laboring constantly and that sort of thing. And lo and behold, they printed it. It was the first time I'd ha- had anything published in you know, a little newspaper there. And then I formed a little trio uh, with a couple of friends at at uh, school, and uh, we played the talent show and won the talent show. And then I got awarded for, uh, I forget what it was, um, Best Musician or something, and I received an award. So it all sort of started back then. Um, My first performance was uh, actually even before that, probably when I was about five years old, and that was getting up in front of my grandfather and grandmother's church and leading happy birthday for somebody in the, in the congregation. Wow. So that was my first. <laughs> so, wow. so skip, skip, skip ahead a few years. I moved from Southern California to, uh, to the Bay Area in 64, uprooted, thrown into the high school there, didn't know anybody and. It was uh, it, it it was a it was a tough time for me because I had I had left my friends. My dad was in construction. He had to uh, there wasn't much construction in Southern Cal at the time, and they, something was going on in the Bay Area where he could get more work. And so we just uprooted and went 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 there. And uh, in high school, of course, it was during the sort of drug culture, and um, I wasn't completely comfortable with that. My friends were. A lot of drugs going on. I participated to some extent, but I, I really um, felt that there might be a, a way I could achieve a natural high, and it was probably going to be through some religious experience of some sort. So I, I knew friends in high school. There were, there were people that were members of the Baha'i faith, and there were Scientologists, and yeah, the whole spectrum. And... Um, I read a lot. I, I I even read Bonhoeffer. I didn't really get it, but I read it. Wow. And uh, I checked out the Rosicrucians. Uh, <laughs> crazy You're stuff. You're 14, Just, 15 years old. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and so later on, um, because of the band People, oh, that was yeah. uh, Larry, Larry Norman's band, um, one of my best friends was uh, the nephew of the keyboard player in, in People. Oh, wow. And three, and I think it was three of those guys or four of those guys, I'm not sure you probably know better than I, were in Scientology. And so my friend suggested that we go down and take a class. Get rid of those Thetans, man. And I'm thinking about going clear, and you know, <laughs> right. and, and and at one point when I was really uh, pissed off at my folks, I decided I was going to join the Sea Org. Oh wow, deep end. Yeah, okay. which was which is huge, which is a huge decision for a kid to make. That I was just going to leave the house, pack my stuff. I was talking to the guys on the phone. They're saying, "Come down," you know. They wanted me to come up to San Francisco and and go to some area on the bay there and and join the Sea Org. And uh, I said, uh, "I don't know how I'll get there. I don't have a car, but I'll try to do it." 
Well, that didn't work out, um, and I'm obviously thankful that yeah. it didn't <laughs> work out. So anyway, one, one of the one of my dearest friends in in high school that I had formed a band with called the Cardboard Scheme, and we we're fairly popular in the area there. And as a matter of fact, we played with uh, with people a couple times and. And uh, he was the bass player and the chief songwriter. I was kind of like a fledgling songwriter wannabe. And I was learning a lot from this guy because uh, he, he knew how to write a hook and he knew how to write a good chorus and he, great melodies. And we did a lot of cover stuff, but he had introduced the, that into the equation. And so I was trying to write, write my songs and so forth. And um, time went on and... Uh, my friend took a lot of LSD, and then he went on. Then, then eventually, he went on his own spiritual quest. And he would call me from time to time. I'd, he, he he was off somewhere. I don't know. You know, it could have been anywhere. But you'd hear sort of sitar music in the background. He'd be he'd be talk, you know, talking philosophically and uh, you know about his visions or whatever. Well, that went on for quite some time, and then. Uh, one day he called me and said, hey, I'm in town, which is in Los Gatos, California. He said, I'm in town, I'd like to see you. And I hadn't seen him for maybe a year. I said, sure. So he comes over to the, comes over to the house. He's carrying this, you know, luggage-sized Bible. And I'm going, I'm going, oh, no, I'm in for it now. I'm really in for it. Well, the, the beauty of the whole thing was that I get gotten sort of a little bit critical of the Scientology thing. And I was seeing things with with the people that were supposedly clear or operating Thetans or whatever that didn't jive with, it, it just didn't seem real to me. Right. And I was beginning to kind of disillusioned. So it was a right time for this to happen. But this guy walked in, and I thought, oh boy, he's going to be a Bible thumper and asked me to pray the uh, sinner's prayer or whatever. And he... Um, he wasn't. He was very approachable, and he was just talking about uh, Christ. And there was something that resonated with me there. And I took that with me uh, that day, and uh, I contemplated it. And I, and I had been to church as a kid, but I didn't know anything about having this idea of a personal relationship with God, that kind of thing. And so I don't want to go into a lot of detail on this, but I was in my room one night at home, and it occurred to me that this Christian thing might be true. Is it possible it's true? And then I had sort of thoughts about Scientology, and I was thinking about L. Ron Hubbard and what he had to say about life and how you could be free. And, and I saw these sort of these two things sort of warring mm -hmm. with one another. And at one point, and this is where it gets a little strange, at one point, I said, well, you know, God, you're there. Uh, help me to see you or to know you and the the sensation of the air being taken completely out of the room hmm. and um, this is indescribable for me I, it's very hard for me to talk about because the words fail hmm. 
a sense of presence of something holy going on. And I was both completely frightened and at the same time this this uh, yearning because I because it was a real experience it was a, it was a real thing. it wasn't in my mind I knew it wasn't in my mind this was actually happening and I heard the first thing I heard was choose today who you will serve that was the first thing I heard never heard that scripture in my life wow yeah and then there was something personal going on at the time and then I heard the trial is over and I knew exactly what that meant and what exactly that applied to hmm. and then I heard remember this I will never speak to you this way again wow clear as a bell I heard this. Now it's not like an audible voice in a no, room. Right. It's, it's yeah. you know, it's almost something and, closer and, than audible. If that makes like that's, yeah, 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 it is. Yeah. It's it's, um, and I was shaking. Wow. I was shaking and I was weeping. And I have never heard that voice again. I hear it through uh, the books I read. I hear it right. through. The Bible, right? Uh, I hear it through my friends. I hear it in songs. But the bush only uh, burned the, once for you. <laughs> the, bu the bush burned once for right. me. Yeah, right. that's ex that's exactly what happened. Wow! And that sent me on another path. I was I was with a little trio. We were writing uh, lots of songs. They were really good songs. We had uh, plans to go up to Winterland and try and audition up there and get something going. Get a recording. Uh, some kind of recording going and that sort of thing. And this uh, changed my perspective a little bit. I started introducing so little songs about my uh, expression, my first expressions of my faith into this band. And we were, we would play them in our set. And they were open to that because, because the culture, the, the vibe was spiritual anyway. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And then, then one thing led to another. And, um, I, I had no, I didn't, I didn't know about any other Christian musician. I didn't know that anybody was doing anything. I didn't know about Larry or Randy, or 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 any of the bands down in Southern Cal or anything. Right. I thought I'm alone in this, and I was writing these songs. And uh, one day a guy gave me a love song uh, album, hmm. and I put it on, and it changed everything because I thought these guys are good. They're really good at what they do. They're uh, they're talking about their relationship with Christ, and uh, and it's not embarrassing. Right. It's beautiful and it's fun and it's whimsical, and uh, that really changed me. And then eventually, I moved down to Southern California and became part of the Maranatha music scene, Calvary Chapel, all that. That's a whole other story. There's lots of stuff to tell in there, but. Right. Uh, that's but, how it, that's how it all began. We recorded our first uh, uh, the first album, uh, Daniel Amos record in 1976. Right. We're going to step away from my conversation with Terry Taylor for just a moment, but we'll be right back after this. Okay. 
I'm actually hitting the road with the True Tunes Live Tour. The first few live events are in the books. Thank you so much to the hosts and to the folks who have come out. You can follow all of the action at truetunes.com slash events. And if you would be interested in having me come speak in your neck of the woods, drop me a line at jjt at truetunes.com and let me know. We are collecting contact info and ideas for tour dates. These things can range from large-scale on-stage talks to conversations in living rooms around a record player. If that sounds good to you, let me know. I want to take a minute to thank our Patreon backers. Our patrons get early access to shows, and we send them special higher quality audio files that they can download. If you're loving this show and would be willing to donate a few bucks a month to help us do what we do, you can find the link on the show notes page or go to patreon.com slash truetunes and check it out. There is a lot more we are hoping to do with this show, and having a little more financial support would definitely make that possible sooner. Thanks so much. Okay, back to the interview suite with Terry Scott Taylor. One of the things I've been bumping up against as I've been talking about this Jesus movement and what was happening, a lot of people zero in on Calvary and Maranatha and that stuff because that's because they have some great photos and there's music. But the way you're describing your story lines up with a lot of what I've heard from people around the country and even around the world, that there was something going on long before 1970, before Calvary, before Lonnie Frisbee and all that. And some of it, I it seems that the culture you're describing where young people were exploring all kinds of spiritual avenues from really crazy stuff, culty stuff, to traditional religious stuff to Eastern religion, there was a lot of that spiritual kind of soil tilling going on for, for many years. Your story that you just said lines up with a lot of what I've heard from other people that it just seemed like the conditions were right for many, many young people on their own path to around the same time find this version, this this kind of refreshed version of a relationship and an understanding of Jesus and, and Christianity that was distanced from the institutional uh, version that had been handed down and maybe kind of lost, lost its way a little bit. So uh, do you recall that being just kind of the, the spirit in the air that, do you remember any particular influences or reference points that sort of nudged you on that path uh yeah the air was thick with the craving for something transcendent you know something that you could experience um that would give you uh tap you into something spiritual without the use of um drugs that were that were killing people right you know a lot of people or, or, or driving them insane or whatever it might be. And um, so, so I think there was just a, it was almost faddish to some degree, but it was a hippie movement. And then you had the Beatles that were telling you about these sort of experiences that you can, that, that they were having um, through the use of uh, LSD or whatever. So there was just a, um, a barrage of uh, people that were trying to 
to get outside of themselves and, and be in a place, tap into something that would uh, uh, take them out of the, the mundane, the drudgery of their lives and, and maybe tap into what they thought was God on some, some spiritual quest of some sort. And I was just another one of those people that did that. And, uh, uh, and it was through an, enough disillusionment with uh, things that I had tried that drove me back to what to my sort of childhood roots with the family going to Easter services and sort of sitting there with the, with the program and fanning yourself and <laughs> everybody dressing up and, uh, you know, chewing gum or whatever and the, and the preacher preaching hellfire. And, uh, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't what I, I didn't want that. But when my friend shared with me something about the person of Jesus of Nazareth, that was different. Yeah. That was a different deal. Who is this guy? You know, what is this about? What does he have to say? And, uh, and when I, when God himself decided that he was going to reveal himself to me for in the fashion that he did for whatever reason. People tell me, I've never had an experience like that. Why you? And I go, have no idea. Right. Got no idea. Maybe it's because it was the only way I could be persuaded. I have no idea. Right. It's a mystery. Right. It's a beautiful mystery. Ah. But, you know, <laughs> nice. The name of my solo record. That's, that's a plug. There you go. Anyway. Well done. Well played. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Is it Tell me about the musical palette. You know, you you had a an initial start, and then eventually Daniel Amos forms with the the music that Graham Parsons and the Birds and that that kind of cosmic yeah. country thing. Yeah. So tell me about the musical palette that you were playing in, and and how that was informed by the scene there in Southern California and helped form it, and then how it evolved as you started to say, okay, I'm going to sing about this faith, but I'm going to do it in my own way. Well, I had a, have an aunt. She's actually a year younger than me, and uh, she was an avid singles collector. You know, forty fives. In our family, uh, my mom and dad didn't buy records and have a record player, uh, so there wasn't really any music coming from our house except the little tunes I was making up. Hmm. But when I went over to my grandmother and grandfather's house, and my aunt Heidi, she had all, had all these singles, and she had a, she had uh, the you know Teen Dream guys like Ricky Nelson, you know, and Fabian, and wow. you know Elvis of course. 
we would listen to these songs and we'd even get on one song for play it over and over and over uh little eva uh keep your hands off my baby was one of the songs keep your hands off of my baby can't you get it through your head that boy is mine you know and we'd play it over and over and over again well then motown happened about the same time as the british invasion and that i, I was a beach boy fan I, I lived in dana point uh at one point and uh, the beach boys mentioned doheny which was our beach down there so we'd hurt we'd hear that and get all excited about that so I was a big Beach Boy guy. Then the Beatles came in, and I was conflicted. Uh, you know, and uh, I didn't know you could integrate the two. I learned you could, and I did. So, and then, and then, so it was Motown, the Beatles, the Beach Boys. That was my sweet spot. That's what I wanted to be. That's what I wanted to do. Um, skipping ahead. Then I, I was also uh, obviously got into uh, the British invasion, but also uh, American bands. The Birds were big, and uh, Sweetheart of the Rodeo was one of my favorite records. Which and is a real left turn because it takes you totally what, into the desert. And, yeah, 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 exactly. And I just thought I'm going to do that kind of thing for a while. I was always aware of the fact that. Um, that it wasn't solely what I wanted to do. It was just, it was that phase of my life where I was listening to that record and, and uh, this rock band, rock folk rock band doing this country record. I thought that was, that's kind of cool. And so I wrote a, some songs in that style. And uh, I, there was a, a woman at church, an older woman, had, had a husband and a, and a bunch of kids. Uh, her name is Katie Hazelton. And Katie was uh, just one of these people that is constantly joyful. Just had this incredible joy about her. Laughs all the time, smiling, praising God, you know, one of those people. But not in a sort of nauseating way. A flow of her, of her personality, natural to her. And she said, hey, we've got a, we've got a, a reel-to-reel tape recorder at home if you want to come over and record some of this stuff and I did and that was the early some of the early Daniel Amos stuff that was that was that was my sweetheart of the rodeo stage and so that some of that made it on made it on the first record but I had always in the back of my of my mind the idea that what influenced me about making records were the Beatles in that usually they release their record at Christmas time. And I completely loved the idea that I didn't know where they were going to take me. Hmm. I just loved that. Some some people didn't like that. There's a lot of former Beatle fans after they, after they got out of their mop top thing meet the Beatles and that sort of thing. When they got into some of the heavier stuff, they went, no, I don't want to have anything to do with it. I loved it. I, I you know, I would open at Christmas, I'd see the gifts under the tree, and I'd see, I'd know, I knew that my folks had gotten me a Beatle record. I saw it wrapped. 
And so, you know, it's sitting there, it's glowing, you know, I'm ready to go for it. And I've got to go through all this other crap, you know, to get to it, you know. And and so so finally, you know, I get it and that's the rest of the day and into the night. I'm just in my room playing it over and over again. My folks, I got my folks to buy me a two-track tape recorder that I could do overdubs on. And uh, that completely opened up my world. And uh, I would, I, that was my life, is recording. And uh, my folks were worried about me. Right. They were worried. They weren't worried about my brother who was getting drunk every Friday night and you know that's normal, around. right? Man, that's, that's normal stuff. That's what boys do, right? A guy, yeah, a guy back in his room right. all day long over the weekend, right? You know, yeah, doing uh, making recordings is something else. Yeah. So that's where that where that's where that came from, and and uh, and and I took that sensibility into uh, into. Uh, my work uh, in Daniel Amos. Uh, I a- had always had a vision from the very beginning that this is going to be eclectic, but that's exactly what I wanted. I wanted I I wanted to be able to uh, share uh, my faith and uh, my my some insight, uh, whether it's theological, cultural, whatever it is. But I wanted musically to be a surprise for people. And I thought, no, that's not going to be pleasing to everyone. And it wasn't, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> yeah. By the time, Shock and Angel was about as far as they wanted us to go. And I remember uh, Jonathan David Brown, who was our, who God rest his soul, but he was our uh, producer and engineer, Shock and Angel, and we put together this incredible record, and yeah. and we had orchestration and the whole thing. We sat in the first time we had it edited together because it's sort of a concept, as you know. And the first time we had it edited together, and we turned the lights out, and all the orchestration was together, and had, and, and we hadn't heard it its entirety, and we wept. Wow! And it was just to hear it, to hear it, yeah. and uh, and Jonathan was fantastic the whole time and supportive. And then one day I was in the car with him. I don't forget where we were going. He says, he says, uh, well, Terry. He goes, you got it out of your system. He goes, uh, next record you need to, need to get back to your roots, <laughs> which which meant the first record, right? See? So, so we knew. I and knew you're thinking my roots are pet sounds. I'm going to go crazy next time. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And yeah, I was short, sort of shocked that he said it, but uh, but yeah. uh, anyway, I, I thought oh, this is what's going to happen with our fan base. We're going to have a lot of division here. Yeah. We're going to have people saying you, you know loved you as cowboys, but this you know right. space cowboys. That's a different. That's a different. <laughs> Walls of paper then he hopes the neighbor folks are listening. He's killed his wife with words, coughing in its private rage. When up goes the curtain and he's on the stage. He's on the stage, yeah. God sees it all. He's on the stage, yeah. He has total recall. It is. Yeah. 
Well, you also were doing something else because in addition to stretching people musically, definitely by horrendous disc, you're stretching people into being self-reflective and using humor to deliver some difficult thoughts about this journey that we're on where most Christian music was no longer a revolution. This was now a pretty safe uh, market and you guys are doing songs that were questioning the institutions and questioning individuals with our our thoughts and our hearts and our prejudices and you were going in a direction that christian music hadn't that christian music in terms of the stuff in that market had not gone so you were going to get it well i think think (laughs) one way or another i think back to that time and i think was i being courageous or stupid it doesn't have to be either. It could be both. <laughs> well, it could be both. Uh, yeah, it it it, uh, it was interesting because our demographic changed quite a bit. We, we had the you had the first record, and we've been doing a lot of stuff like out in Texas, you know, playing out there and Arizona and around uh, the south there, and and uh, and then uh, when we when we went with horrendous disc, then. Uh, the the eastern part of the United States, we started getting fans from that came in at that point that didn't like the cowboy stuff, and then we lost some of the cowboy people. But there 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 also have been fans um, that have stayed with us from the very beginning. New were were uh, uh, were smart about um, what we were trying to do in regard to not only um, the sort of um, exploring different styles and, and, and delivery systems, but um, in terms of what we were trying to say. And um, that, that these critiques uh, were not necessarily finger-pointing uh, in that um, we ourselves, you know, I, me personally, I, I I knew of times when I was, when I was being um, a hypocrite, or I or I was angry at someone um, who I shouldn't have been angry at, or I was prideful, or whatever, self-aware. So, I I could write these songs out of my own personal experience and sort of lay that out before the before the listener, and have them go, oh yeah, I. I hear, I hear myself in that. Right. I hear, I hear, I hear this, and I and I think it gave, it gave a, a certain degree of authenticity to the faith, because um, I'd gone through the fake thing. I'd gone through the early stages of the fake. Oh, I'm I'm a I'm a born again together Christian, and you know, and I'm going to go out there and change the world thing, and. You know, trying to impress other people, hoping you're impressing other people with your spiritual knowledge and right. uh, and state of your being. I've been through that, so I so I knew the hypocrisy of that and right. and, and and the pride, and and so the, I, I just began to express that express that freely in the music. Uh, consequences to some degree, be damned. I just right. didn't. You know, I, I I didn't think of consequences, and that's where I'm saying I don't know if it was just uh, I wasn't I wasn't facing reality 
Right. In that sense, a, right. a marketing kind of strategy, you know, right. keep, keep keep entertaining it, the, the housewives with their vacuuming, you know, and, and, and feed them a lot of, you know, uh, stuff that's going to just encourage them and that sort of thing or or say hard things right. about myself and about all of us. Did you ever just consider that if the market that if the Christian music proper market really didn't want introspective, thoughtful, theologically dangerous, and I don't mean that in a heretical way, I just mean in a when you start thinking about theology, it gets complicated and pop songs are a, it's difficult to do that well. Did yeah. you ever start to wonder if that was the right market for you to be in and maybe you should have just gone the T-Bone Burnett Bono U2 route and left the Christian well, market w- behind? We did make that effort. That was around the time of Horrendous Disc. And that was when uh, Curb Records wanted to sign us. And that would have been a what is called a secular deal. So that was our way of... We, we, we were going out trying to... We were putting out feelers to try and sort of escape the this uh, this label that, that made... Uh, made the ordinary person sort of look at you sideways and wonder what you were up to, you know. So we made that effort. It wasn't for lack of trying. I mean, we take another show to go into all that and how that came down and what was happening there. So we thought, yeah, maybe that's that's something we would want to do. But it just seemed as though um, just the, the, the planets weren't lining up. So... I eventually, and I don't know at one point in my career, I made peace with it, and then I felt like, you know, I'm, I have, I still have things to say to the church itself, I and I and I think that that's, uh, I think I've gone from being uh, so much, not not that there isn't uh, there there aren't things to criticize. There definitely are. We know, we know, we. <laughs> We know in our culture now, uh, but uh, a voice of encouragement, and I, so I'm trying to, and and a voice that uh, maybe is unique a little bit in the in the in the in the idea that I'm the age I am, and uh, I'm dealing with health problems and all sorts of things, and have a real sense of my, my own. Uh, mortality. There's not a day that goes by that I that I thoughts of, um, not in a morbid way, but just accepting the, the truth of uh, uh, getting older and that 
um, you never you never know when uh, when death is going to come, and uh, that gives you a different perspective. and And I brought that into um, into my music. It started really uh, heavily with Daniel Amos's "Dig Here," said the angel. Right. I thought I thought I would talk about age and I and and uh, our mortality and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, I'm doing it also in the solo record. We'll be right back with more from Terry Scott Taylor after this. When it comes to the True Tunes conversation, there are a few things you can do that will really help us stay connected with you. First, sign up on our email list. It really is important to know that we can communicate directly with you without having to pay a middleman like Facebook for you to see what we post. Second, make sure to watch for the confirmation email and confirm it when it comes. Then, add us to your contacts so our messages don't get caught in your spam filters. Next, find us on Facebook, at TrueTunesNow, and like us there. Find us on Instagram, at TrueTunesMusic, and follow us there. And you can follow me on Twitter, at John J. Thompson. One way you can support this show is by checking out our brand new merch store at Threadless. Just head to truetunes.threadless.com to find all kinds of cool t-shirts, sweatshirts, masks, coffee cups, posters, notebooks, including two brand new rainbow designs. When you order through this Threadless store, they make the products and ship them directly to you. We still also have some of the original TrueTunes shirts and our famous swag packs, including buttons, guitar picks, stickers, and patches, which you can order at truetunes.com. So, get yourself some cool stuff and put some gas in our virtual tank at the same time. Thanks. And now, back to my conversation with Terry Scott Taylor. Under the outcry, my Savior, don't be silent long. of mine My troubled heart When I lift my hands To thee Be my hiding Tell me about this different identities, creative identities that have come out of Terry Scott Taylor. There's Terry, the frontman for Daniel Amos. There's Terry, the solo artist. There's the Swirling Eddies. And a few years after that, the Lost Dogs. Why so many different creative hats? <laughs> Tell me about that. First of all, I'm, I'm, I'm just creatively restless hmm. I, for whatever reason. I think I, I consider it a gift, the desire to create, the desire to have a uh, expansive palette from which to work and to go any direction I want to go. And that is so liberating for me. And it can't all be contained in one entity, I don't think. And so that's part of uh, when I started working for Frontline Records, which was, they were churning out an album a day almost at that point. And uh, there was a deal there between certain parties that um, the owner, Frontline, 
had a contract uh, where, uh, and I think it was with Benson, I can't remember, but um, that Benson or whatever the company was had to take had to take every record that Frontline gave them. They they screwed up in in ascertaining that from the contract they signed, and so there was just this demand. The the more obviously more albums Frontline could make, the more money they would make, and so right. forth. So I was being told, do whatever you want to do. Well, for me, that's that's the uh, that's a golden goose. You know, that's. Uh-huh. Yeah, that, you couldn't and, have put uh, out ten Daniel Amos records, so right, split you can't it up. you right. can't do ten. Yeah, split it up. Right. So not not only was I doing a lot of producing at that right. point in time, yeah. but I, I I could I could I did a, a I decided I'd do a kids thing, which I right. did. I did a couple of kids things. Harry right. Who Done It, and That's I did right. uh, yeah I did Harry Who Done It, uh, Fruits of the Spirit, the little cereal boxes. Yeah. Raptures, which I don't even want to name, which I don't even want to talk. I don't want to talk about it, John. You brought it up. Don't, I brought it up at a press conference at Cornerstone, and you gave me a death stare that made me want to go back to like sixth grade and crawl <laughs> under my desk. <laughs> that was uh, great. We will not talk about that. All right. So anyway, moving on. Uh, now everybody's going to want to check it out. That's the problem. You invented cultural live- appropriation. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I can't live it down, man. It follows me everywhere. So so one of the things that, that I got to do, that I decided to do, is I'm going to do this uh, alter ego, and I'm going to do um, a thing called Swirling Eddies. And, uh, and it's just going to be fun. I'm not going to have. I'm not going to really have to think about it that much. I'm not going to have to go too deep with it. I can just have a good time, and uh, we put it together and uh, recorded our first record. And we kind of did a disguise thing, and we took on, you know, you yeah. know about it. it yeah. Took on the different names. I'm Camarillo, Eddie, but it was also different band members from different bands. So you had Gene yeah. Eugene from yeah. Adam again. You had. You know, different a couple of different guest stars in the band. At right, least in our world, right. they were stars, right? Yeah. Was there and an intention uh, with the Swirling Eddies that that might have gone mainstream? Like, did you do an effort to try to pitch that to college radio or anything like that, or was that just apocryphal? Yeah, we never did. Okay. I don't. I don't. Rem- you know what? Maybe we we did, but I don't. I don't recall that. I don't. I, I just don't recall it. The, the whole secret identity thing wasn't an attempt to get Daniel Amos into the mainstream away from the name. No, not, not, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Right. And I mean, if you, if you pick up that first record and you don't know who that is, uh, right. you know, you got to get your brain checked. I mean, it was pretty obvious, but, right. uh, but it was fun. It was a fun thing to do. Yeah. And then, so you did your, your first couple of solo records were, were definitely different than Daniel Amos in terms of the the lyrical tone, even the style of music, it was a it was a gentler approach. It was a little bit more direct in terms of the um, subject matter. You know, one was dealing with, uh, well, they both kind of were dealing with mortality, even all the way back then. If now that you mention it, you know, they were dealing with death. They were they were highly literary, although all of your stuff was literary, but dealing with um, you know references to briefing for the ascent was you know William Blake specifically um uh so 
it seemed like you were able to put a hat on that said, okay, this isn't just going to be a Daniel Amos record mixed slightly differently or with under a different name because, and plus those actually weren't on Frontline now that I mentioned, at least the first one wasn't. You definitely had a different creative voice when you did a so, your solo work than when you were in Daniel Amos. Yeah, I think it was just, I think what it is, it was just more personal. It was a more personal right. viewpoint. And and the difference between um, the, um, you know, uh, subject matter of, of, of death and dying was at that time it was about other people right it was about it was about the first first uh, death in my family that that um, just uh, destroyed me emotionally uh, came out of that but it was my grandfather because he was a hero of mine and someone that uh, I loved deeply and uh, it was an an affectionate, wonderful man, and to have lost him, so that that sort of began at that early stage to think about again about mortality. And now, uh, and I, and I have experienced, uh, and you know a lot of the a lot of hmm. a lot of these people, but my friends that have passed away. Uh, family members that passed away. My mom, who had Alzheimer's, who passed away. I have an uncle, a dear uncle, son of my grandfather, who now has Alzheimer's. Mm. So a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, suffering and pain and, uh, and death going on. Um, and that tends to focus one in the moment and those moments were um, that you especially with my grandchildren my granddaughters um, to take to take the old you know one day at a time thing and be in the moment the, the moment of their laughter their moment of their play the moment of their reaching up and saying I love you and that's where you get your 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 perspective changes, and and uh, these things become dear and holy to you. Yeah. And that's where I am in my life right now. One of my guiding principles in writing anything I write, I'll say it in a different way. And I, I think that's been a guiding principle for me. I think about our sort of Sunday school pictures of who God is, and who Christ is, and what it is to be a Christian. And these are implanted in most of us. And 
or fire and brimstone or whatever it may be. And I think I'm endeavoring to find a way in to a person who thinks they know what it is to have a relationship with God. And even saying a relationship with God has become a cliche. So you're always you're always hitting these you're always hitting these cliches and you're always trying to find a, a way through that, a way that that um, speaks to someone that they, they don't hear all the noise of uh, the traditional way of speaking of these things. So that's always by way of metaphor. That's the power. That's the power that we have as as, as co-creators here. It's the power of metaphor, and even that fails in, in in many ways. But that is the that is our most powerful tool. And uh, whenever I write a song, I'm thinking I'm writing for someone who figures thinks that they have it all figured out. They think they know exactly what this thing is about. They think. They've heard it all, uh, even Christians, that they've heard it all, right? And there's nothing new to hear. And in some sense, God has quit speaking. He said all he's going to say, and uh, right. right? So if you say it in a way that they have not heard it, heard it before they're go- they're going to be attentive to it i like someone going oh, what is he saying here mm-hmm. what is what is this about it's intriguing to them it, it it brings them into the experience of the song and we can explore it together i i love when people ask me what son- what a song the meaning of a song mm-hmm. and i and i've always said what does it mean to you mm-hmm and what has blown my mind in that is that people have given me stuff back that was not my intention right but yet is as truthful as what i intended and it's a beautiful thing to hear that that they've thought about it uh how many people have written to me uh and and said you know Every time I hear this song, I'm, I'll give you an example. It's um, uh, Lost Dog song, uh, Eleanor, It's Raining. That's a song that, that just drives people nuts. What is, you know, what, what, is, what is he talking about? But they're thinking about it, and they want to know, and, and, they, and they toss around ideas in their own minds. Oh, I think he's, I think he's talking about this. And I, I don't, I don't want to be the center of attention on this deal. I, I want the song to be, I want the song to grab them, and and offer them the possibility of going deep, right? Uh, of what God might be saying to them personally, not just to me or my intentions. Well, that's important, but for them, what speaks to them in a unique way that they couldn't hear before now they're hearing it and it can be life-changing at that point it's living it's a living word it's not dead on a piece of paper but it's becomes mm-hmm. part of their their soul yeah. and um and that's it's a privilege to to be able to have that voice with people 
and it's always my intention, it is always my intention that this leads not to my ability as a songwriter, um, anything personal regarding myself, but that it leads to the person of Jesus of Nazareth, always leads to him. That's what my life is about, and that's where I, that's where I will continue to point people. going to step away from my conversation with Terry for now. We'll be back, though, with a careful exploration of his new album, This Beautiful Mystery, on part two of this episode. If you think this has been good so far, hold on to your 10-gallon hats and brace yourself for what comes next. That's going to do it for this episode of the True Tunes Podcast. On part two, we dive into this beautiful mystery in depth and talk with Terry about what the future may hold. And please, help us spread the word about this episode, this amazing album, and this incredible artist. We are hoping beyond hope that this is not only exciting for Terry's existing fans, but a way for new people to discover him and his work. So get out there and help us do that. I want to thank Bruce A. Brown for his outstanding production work. I'm not kidding when I say that when we started this show, we both knew that at some point there were a few episodes that we just had to make, and this was one of them. Bruce's love for Terry is obvious in the attention he pays to the little things that make the show sound so good. I certainly could not do it without him. I also want to thank Phil Keggy and Rex Paul for our theme song. Spoiler alert, Phil makes a special appearance on Terry's new album as well, and it is really sweet. You'll find a complete list of all of the songs used on this episode on the show notes page at truetunes.com. Please make sure to sign up for our email list. Leave us a good rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. It actually makes a huge difference. Check out our Patreon program and support us if you can. The contents of the podcast are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. 
Gyroscope Productions can be reached at jjt at truetunes.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee 37206. Until next time, this is JJT inviting you to listen for the good, the true, and the beautiful wherever it may be found. Peace. I'll be back like Schwarzenegger.